Welcome back to Love, Life, and Legacy, the podcast dedicated to helping you navigate these hypersexualized times of ours. And in today's episode, Benji and I are unpacking some advice on how to start your blessing off with a bang, your marriage off with a bang, because there's a bunch of people about to get blessed right now. And I'm sure many of them are excited. Some are very worried. Others are just trying to take this whole thing in one camera at a time, one hug at a time. And so we just want to speak from our experience as individuals who went through this process, but also as people who have given care to many, many other people who have gone through the process of going from single to married and how that looks and how you can get started on the right foot so that you can scale all the good stuff and make more and more amazing memories for years and eons to come. So let's get into it. Howdy, folks. Welcome back to the Love, Life, and Legacy podcast. This is your best buddies right here. Andrew, how you doing, Andrew? Apparently better than you because I know where I am. <laughs> Which no podcast were you going to introduce? The Married Happy Men podcast. It's something with an M. You had yes. something with an M. Don't worry about that. My name is Benji, and I'm here in Japan. And the reason I'm saying that is because tomorrow I am heading to Korea for the Hyojun Cosmic Blessing that is taking place on this coming weekend. Andrew's asking what we should talk about in this podcast. So I wanted to make something that's specifically for people that are starting their marriage. And we're going to be titling this something along the lines of starting your marriage with a bang, a big old bang. I like that logic too, that you're like, I'm in Japan. And the reason I'm telling you this is because I'm going to Korea. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to be one of those guys that's always shouting like, hey, I'm in Mexico right now, just on vacation. Totally out of context. You know, there's a reason I'm here. You don't need uh, a so we're gonna... to be in Japan. I don't know. It's just my insecurity. It's crippling insecurity. feels like I need to explain myself all the time. You're like that too. You always have yeah. to explain things and it's okay. It's fine. I don't know if it's insecurity. I feel like mine is for context, but maybe it is a deep rooted insecurity from being Canadian and worried about whether people will know that I'm Canadian or not. I think Great. you broke me, Freud. You got me. Yeah, it is. Okay. So let's get into it. Benji has been working with blessed couples for a long time. Predates High Noon for sure. Predates the existence of High Noon. Definitely predates his work for High Noon. And it's a passion of his, is talking to people who are preparing for the blessing and people who are already in the blessing. And if you're just tuning in for the podcast for the first time ever, the blessing is a marriage ceremony that happens en masse typically, but doesn't need to be. But part of the show is doing this together, that your marriage you're a part of a larger entity known as human race. And to isolate yourself in marriage is to devastate any potential of thriving. So we believe in our movement that when you get married, you should do it with as many mm -hmm. people as possible because that is your support system. So we physically do it with as many people as possible. Just to be clear, when we say do it with as many couples as possible, we mean get married with as many couples as possible. <laughs> Just to clarify. Yes, thank you. Thank you. That's from my lawyer. That's from my legal advisory team. So yeah, we're going to <laughs> the blessing tomorrow. And I have a lot of love for these couples, as all of us do. So we want to give you guys some mental liberation. And I guess the best advice we can give as guys that have been married to separate women for the last 10 years, more than 10 years, both of us. So <laughs> I feel like you just took up podcast <laughs> sensitivity training because you're like, we are married you to different know. women. <laughs> you know. How many people are going to this blessing? How many couples? 
internationally, it's hard to say. In America, we have about 100 couples total. There's about 50 couples going to Korea this weekend, and there's about 50 that are getting blessed in Las Vegas, of all places, this weekend as well, simultaneously. So give or take hmm. 100. I know this has nothing to do with the topic, really, but we're talking about the blessing. And a lot of people are like, they have this perception that because it's not your special day and weddings are all about soaking in people's well wishes for your couple, right? There's a perception that somehow that is lost in something like the blessing, a mass wedding. In my experience, participating one, getting blessed, but also in going to many, many, like in Korea and all over, it's so much better than an average wedding because it's like as excited as one couple is when they're on their wedding day, times that by infinity because you have a stadium now filled with people who are on the brink of explosion because they're so excited about their future. And not everybody shows up in a great mood or, you know, in the right mind frame or whatever. But for the vast majority of folks there, it's like it's a combination of a wedding and a really good family reunion and a high school reunion and like a sporting event because it's in a stadium. So it's like all these things combined. The way that you sell it is like, oh, this big scary thing or actually the coolest event ever. And it is a spectacle for sure, but it's yeah. a spectacle of grandeur and beauty and cosmic delight. I'll agree with that, Andrew, for sure. Because the entire premise of the blessing is really that it's not about me. It's not even about the couple, which is what a wedding typically is about, right? It's about family and community and the world. So it's nice to be intertwined with a global family in that sense and making the marriage not just about me, but also for my spouse and also for my family, for my clan, et cetera. We're going to make this kind of practical for you guys who are wanting to start marriage on the right foot with a bang. And so we've got a few bullet points that Andrew and I have separately made for ourselves, and we're just going to hit them off one by one, if that's all right. Okay. Yeah, this is part two of our experiment, right? Where we come individually prepared for a group podcast. So let's see how this goes. Last time it was more of a battle. This time I hope it's more complimentary. Okay, so these are points from our experience in our own reflection of our own marriage and blessing, but also in counseling many, many people or mentoring or whatever it is that we do. So my first point that I thought is really the idea of going slow and steady so that you can scale the good. Now, a lot of people view the blessing ceremony as this experience that you go through and it's a door, but it doesn't automatically mean you just kind of jump right into this new life. You just move right into each other's worlds to each their own. But just the idea of like taking things slowly, physically, mentally, emotionally, not mm. pouring so many expectations. Like in the typical world, you have your marriage and then right after you have your honeymoon, which is traditionally before the 20th century ruined everything, was like supposed to be the time when you first sleep together and it's supposed to be this magical experience. That's a lot of pressure because you're just like recovering from this frenetic event, right? With all this energy. But with this event, even higher energy and you have traveling and all this stuff. But to come back down and here's why. I say slow and steady because what you can do then is you can scale the good stuff. So you can learn about each other and then scale. So let's just use dancing as a metaphor real quick. If you start slow dancing with somebody and then you just automatically crank it up and like go way faster, 10 times the speed. If you guys don't know how to dance together, you haven't learned 
how to do that whole give and take of dancing and who's leading, who's following and this kind of thing. You're just scaling chaos. You're just making for more pain than is necessary. So it's good to start with a slow dance and enjoy, let it soak in the good vibes of this newness, but take it slowly. And then again, for the sake of, oh, that was cool or whoa, that was scary and talk about it and you can scale it in due time. You're committing to a lifetime and beyond an eternity together. So there's time. So there's no rush as much as you biologically are in a rush to consummate things, <laughs> right? To get down, that's fine. But much more important than all that is building intimacy, which is trust, which is knowing each other on a deeper level. So that's my first thing is slow and steady for the sake of scaling the good. So how does that look like on a practical level when people are starting off their relationship? Talk about everything step by step. Well, sexually, it's like really a lot of conversations and your brother, Sammy, was very vocal about this. They didn't start having sex for like two years after their blessing. Again, not even advisable necessarily, but that's the speed that they were going at. But then contrast that against this one dude. I facilitated a blessing in upstate New York and this guy, I was just like the MC kind of, but he knew that I helped organize it as well. And he came up to me right before the blessing. And he's like, yo, man, you know any hotels around here? And I was like, no, dude, we're kind of in the middle of nowhere. And I was like, you sure you want to start things out like that? And again, no judgment, but just like, are you sure? Are you being driven by your biology right now? Or do you guys have a vision? Especially if you've waited this long for the love of your life to talk about it. What is our vision from here on out? How do we want to take this? Do we want to first start holding hands? A lot of people, right, in our faith do like a 40-day separation where they're not physical for those 40 days and they just really learn how to put God and infuse God into their relationship. So to kind of have that vision is paramount. And you guys know in your sexual integrity as an individual, but now your sexual integrity is as a couple. It doesn't stop just because you stop watching porn or something. Now your sexual integrity means building a healthy, heavenly sexuality with somebody else. So to have a vision is crucial for that. So a lot of conversations and vision casting based on comfort levels. And if you're uncomfortable with something, you talk about it and you work through it because there could be trauma there. There could be just misconceptions. There could be a lot there, but that's where the gold is. That's where getting to know somebody is rushing past that and coercing or cajoling somebody into something they're not really ready for. Mind ready, heart ready, body ready, spirit ready. If they're not fully ready, you don't want to rush into things. So just a lot of conversations and vision casting. Yeah, I think for our first night, Hitue and I, we like budgeted four hours of time to have our first night. And it was something that I recommend to people because it seems like, especially in that first experience, it can bypass a lot of potential difficulty or pain in the first experience if you just take it slowly. And we've heard countless experiences of couples who have felt a tremendous amount of love from each other if they just are willing to take their time and not just kind of rush into it. Because when you rush into a sexual relationship and you're not on the same page communicatively, you're not communicating like Andrew's saying, then it's very easy to feel used and it's very easy to feel like we're just not in sync. But if you're on a foundation of constant communication and give and take and you take your time, What's communicated is, oh, this person cares about me, is not just thinking about themselves. If you have a negative experience the first time, which some people do, it's not the end of the world. There's no mistake or there's no affliction that cannot be redeemed. There's yeah. no mistake we can make in marriage 
this is actually my first point that I'll segue into, is that give yourself the mental liberation that it's reasonable to suck at marriage from the beginning. And I'm saying that as a guy, especially people that are like me will relate to this, people who are like high achievers and want to do the best from the very beginning and never make mistakes and put our best foot forward. We have a tendency to beat ourselves up and get down on ourselves when we do make mistakes and when we do suck, when we do inevitably cause pain to our partner or make mistakes or say things that are unloving or do things that are unloving. Especially for me as an 18 year old that got blessed and married at 18 and thinking I was cat's pajamas, whatever, I was not. (laughs) And thinking I was and wanting to have my relationship perfect in my eyes and then being hit with a hard reality that I actually do suck at this. And that was really hard for me to admit. And I was always trying to justify and protect my ego and saying, no, it's her, it's not, it's like, it's not my fault or it's my environment or circumstances. But just to give myself the liberation of, it's actually reasonable to not be good at marriage. And it's unreasonable to assume that I'll be good at this. Because if you think about it from the principal perspective, marriage is designed in a way that we complement each other and together we experience God's love and we become like God to our children, to people around us. And so it's reasonable to assume that it'll take a little bit of give and take, a little bit of stepping on each other's toes to create this beautiful dance of marriage. We have give and take to the point where we are able to experience fulfillment and happiness. And we're going to suck at it from the beginning. And I know for some people, when I say that, they don't like the terminology, like I'm going to suck at this. But the reality is like, we're not going to be great at it. (laughs) After I realized that, that this is part of marriage, this is part of the blessing is actually going through the growing pains sometimes. When I realized that it lifted a huge burden off my shoulder because I realized like this is actually what I need to go through. For our couple to become a diamond, we have to go through a lot of pressure, a lot of difficulty in order to rub up against each other, so to speak, in order to become that diamond. And so I kind of was like, oh, this is fine. This is part of it. I just have to learn how to grow from this difficult conversation or experience. And there we go. This is actually what we're supposed to be doing. This is marriage. So realizing that conflict is part of the process of marriage was very, very liberating for me. And it completely changed the early stages of my marriage because I stopped looking at this as a problem that needs to be fixed immediately. But actually, it's, this is just part of the process that over time will develop itself and it'll resolve itself if I continue to grow from my experiences and learn from them. It really does seem honestly like this byproduct of our education system which really gives you this feeling of good, bad, right or wrong, which is so bizarre because nothing in life, really important stuff is like that. There's a lot of nuance. And in marriage and in sexuality, it's not about that. It's about learning. Like it's a process of growth. And so the other person that you're in a relationship with, the opportunity to not be good at something and give them grace to kind of grow Mm -hmm. into the role of husband or wife, The idea of like growing into your maturity, that is the heart of God is like, hey, you guys are born essentially useless and you grow up into these mature beings and same with marriage. So I like that point a lot because there's nobody who's great at marriage in the beginning because in the beginning you might feel really good and really natural, but Mm. that is just a phase and you're always going to reach a limitation too. Like I wasn't necessarily inept in being a husband, but I definitely after a certain point was like, I don't have any answers for this present state. So sometimes you're doing great. Sometimes you're doing bad. It's all learning. Nice. Thank you, Benji. 
Hey, if you're getting something good from this episode, you will probably really enjoy our other podcast, The Blessed Couple Podcast, where we talk about how to create a smashing marriage and experience God in the process. And yes, we talk a lot about sex. We have incredible guest speakers that I think you're going to really love. All you have to do is search for Blessed Couple Podcast on your favorite podcast player or just click the link in the description of this episode. Thanks. Back to the show. My next one is the idea of prioritizing the cultivation of intimacy. Man, it's been so bastardized into like this cartoonish version of itself where a lot of people, their immediate association is intimacy equals sex. Mm. I just heard somebody mm. sent me a voicemail and that's how they equated intimacy. But intimacy is like, it could be a look. Let's talk about newly blessed couple. You're cultivating where you touch somebody, like you touch them on the back of the neck. You learn how to hold hands. Like that's crazy. This idea of holding somebody's hands forever is this beautiful thing that I think you take for granted when you do it for a while, but it is this phenomenon, like who typically is on which side and what's comfortable, depending on your height, how you hug, where do you put your mm -hmm. arms around them when you hug and all this stuff you're figuring out. And these are the nuance that yeah. make you start to turn into this symbiotic being. You and the other person become really one, but little by little. Mm -hmm. So there's the touch, but then there's like learning how to talk to somebody and how to listen to somebody. Like there's the five love languages. So learning how to give them love in a way that they can acknowledge it and receive it and reciprocate it. These are all small things that we need to learn in order to cultivate this resulting feeling of, that person is mine and I feel close to them. I feel like I know them. I feel like I'm safe around them. I feel like I can tell them my hopes and my dreams and they won't make fun of me. And I will tell them my deepest fears and they won't kick me while I'm down. It's not about running mm. to tell that person your deepest, darkest secrets out of the gate. It's about cultivating an environment between you and the other person that allows for honesty to flourish. And again, that's like a feeling of safety. It's a feeling of trust. Honestly, humans perceive things uniquely and in a very nuanced way. So like how you look when I'm telling you a story based on my experience on this earth is like if you're bored or if you're excited, if you hate me, I'm perceiving all of this. And it could be true, but it could also be completely wrong because maybe I'm marrying somebody like me. I was blessed as somebody who speaks really loudly and it sounds really angry sometimes, but that's just how she talks. Mm. And it's scary to me because people mm. where I grew up, if they spoke like that, it meant that you were in a lot of trouble. So I freak out. I'm like, what did I do? Why am I in trouble? And she's like, nothing. You know, it's just like my voice. So learning all this, again, is the soil which allows you to plant the seeds and ultimately cultivate intimacy, which is the greatest thing in the world. A relationship with God is an intimate sense that God is your parent. And an intimate relationship with somebody else is this feeling that you're inseparable from that person because you know them too well. And that takes daily effort. And so building that from the beginning is just practically speaking, it's like learning how they respond when you touch them, when you talk to them, when you eat with them, when you make food for them or when they make food for you and like all this stuff, just really paying attention and trying to get better at playing this kind of game of learning one another. It's really beautiful. One thing I learned early on about my wife is that no matter how angry she is at me or I am at her, she will always make me food. 
which I was always surprised <laughs> by. Because if I was angry at someone, especially my spouse, I would not like go out of my way to make them food, you know? But I was just like, oh, you like, fry them up a big turd or something. You just some spiteful, and then poison spiteful it with meal. rat poison. Yeah. <laughs> Men are very yeah. petty, I think. Just give them rat poison. Seriously. But she just would make food, like good food too, right? And I was like, geez. Anyways, when you were talking about like learning how to hug, I was laughing because to this day, when I hug my wife, I literally put my arms around her and she just stands there like a stick. <laughs> and then I grab her arms. And then I put them around my waist and I say, stay, <laughs> like stay here for a minute. And I've had so many, like earlier on, Western culturalization is like, couples do hug. It's just what you do. If you don't hug me, you don't love me. That was my belief, right? And then I had to get over yeah. that and realize that in some cultures, it's just not a thing. It's just not. They love each other through making food for each other, even though they hate their guts, right? So that was like a big hurdle to get over is that she just doesn't speak that language. She just doesn't understand. Question. I just wanted to ask all of our Mediterranean listeners, anybody from especially Italy, is that the case? Is it typical for especially like a really nice Italian cook to still make food even when they're angry? Because my concept of Greeks and Italians is that when they're angry, they use kitchen utensils to throw <laughs> at their spouse. So in Greece, the plates are at the ready because I already have like a set of plates to smash mm. for special occasions anyway. Why not, right? And in Italy, it's like the spoon, the wooden spoon. I would imagine it's hard to cook and throw all the stuff that you, your utensils that you need to cook at the same time. So please reach out yeah. to us with a question or a response to that, okay? I have a hunch that maybe <laughs> someone could tell me. I think Italians are very quick to forgive. We paint them as these very like hot-headed people. But I think they're like a flash in the pan kind of anger. Like you get upset sure. at your kid, kind of like, what are you doing? Like, stupid, like, what are you idiot? I was there last month in Italy or in New York City often. It's not like a rageful American anger where you're just like, oh, I hate your guts and I want you to die. It's not like that. It's just like, yeah, you idiot. Yeah. I have a feeling that they would totally be fine with making food if they got upset. In the beginning stages of marriage, like you were talking about, Andrew, the feelings are the infatuation stage to kick in, which is a stage in which love is abound. It's very easy to forgive. It's very easy to forget. It's very easy to think everything's cute. It's like, oh, you love natto. It's so cute. Or you love kimchi. And then eventually it becomes annoying. And then it eventually becomes a point of tension in the relationship, right? And then I think eventually, as you get old, it just becomes a point of humor. It's like, oh, it's so funny how you love natto so much. And it just humors me, right? Or it's just funny that you're like that. So I'm bringing this point up because what I've learned in my relationship also of working with other married men is that it's very important to have other sources of love and connection outside of just each other, especially yeah. because when you're in the early stages of marriage, it's easy to rely on each other or depend on each other to be filled up, to feel connected, to when you feel down or anxious or stressed or depressed, to lean on each other. But as you go through this life together, there will be times where your spouse is maybe also not in a great space to support you, which is when it's important to have an outside support system. And this is across every area of life, especially regarding sexual integrity, especially regarding emotional states, especially conflict that comes up in marriage. There will be times, like in my own marriage, where I rely so heavily on my wife for affection and intimacy and love and connection and sharing to the point where it's really great when it's working. But as soon as it doesn't work, as soon as she's having a bad day or she's on her period or there's some conflict happening in our relationship and I don't have anyone else to lean on, anywhere else to go. What typically happens is I try to escape and I try to internalize myself and I bottle it up and it usually explodes in a not so favorable way. 
So what I've learned over the years that has honestly saved our marriage tremendously is seeking out support from other sources of love, parental figures, people that I can experience love and connection from that is not just my wife. Because when you two people are upset at each other, angry, there's conflict in a relationship, it is nearly impossible to experience love from each other. Nearly impossible. So you can tap into God's love, of course, in times like that. But from my experience, it's harder to connect to God when we're in that kind of state where we just don't feel connected. And it's easier to feel God's love and to experience receiving that grace when we are connected with people, when we're in a state of being filled up from individuals in our lives. I wish I could just like pray to God and be like, God, forgive me and forgive my wife. Please help us in a relationship and then feel amazing. But it's hard to do that when my wife's upset at me and I made a mistake. I said something unloving and it's just tension in the relationship. So I've learned how to share with kind of mentor figures, uncles in my life, my dad and different people. So that's called widening your support system. And this becomes especially important when you are trying to work on your sexual integrity, right? Like if you're bringing a porn masturbation habit into your relationship, God forbid, hopefully not. But if temptations come up, if urges come up, you're going to need a support system that is wider than just your spouse for a man, especially, but also for a woman. If you're only relying on your wife for accountability, number one, Many times spouses are not the best accountability partners because they don't understand your struggle. But also, number two, it can be a very painful experience for a spouse to help a partner through a porn habit because it's very easy to feel like it's my fault or feel guilt because of it or just feel hurt like it's an offense against me that my partner has this habit. So especially in those instances, it's important to have a support system, but not just with porn masturbation, but every area of your life, every conflict that you have If you can have a wider and deeper support system, you will be able to succeed. When I say wider, I mean more people. And when I say deeper, I mean deeper relationships with those people. So it's constantly working on this safety net of wide relationships and deep relationships. So that's probably one of my biggest tips that I can give you guys is just doing that. It's looking for sources of love and connection outside of just each other and deepening those relationships as well. Like the local arcade. Go hang out at the local arcade when times are tough. Just play Pac-Man until your problems go away. Oh, I want to ask you, how's that played out in your relationship of like finding other people to Pac-Man? connect with? For me, it was high noon, honestly. I was reaching mm-hmm. out to a lot of people proactively to help with my marriage at that time, which was in a really rough spot. But we couldn't find the right people. The people that we were reaching out to, they either didn't have the bandwidth to take care of us or help us, or they came with their own agendas and wanted to scold us. It was really weird. We didn't have a support system. And that's exactly when High Noon came along. And Uncle Dave, you know, started working on that. It wasn't like a perfect fit in the beginning, because he was where he was at. And I was where I was at. But little by little doing the work of High Noon and having people talk to me about their problems, because I was giving lectures, they hearing about what other people were going through really helped me a lot that I wasn't alone in this, you know, struggling certain things with my marriage. But then also having Uncle Dave and Mitzway to kind of talk to and our family would also hang out in their house sometimes. That was really nice because my parents aren't together. So I can't go to my parents' house and hang out with my parents. It's more complicated than that. So our whole family could go to the Wolfenberger's house and spend the day or the weekend. We spent a couple weeks there once and it wasn't like they were just hugging us and supporting us. I think they also had some critiques about our couple too, which we needed to hear. But it was a part of the healing process, which is like living in each other's space. And I was proactively looking for and trying people on. 
as my mentor or mm. like an advisor, something for months and months. Got my it. last point that I wanted to bring up, which I think is vital, is start to develop your own traditions as a couple for what spirituality means. Like that's a cross section for your couple because people relate to God in very different ways. And so when we started our marriage, my wife wanted to have nothing to do with Hunduke in the beginning. And I was all about it. We always go through these cycles where sometimes if I'm not sleeping well at night, I don't wake up in the morning really well because I had a rough night's sleep. And so she'll wake up and Hunduke, we don't have down so well. But one thing that we has really been meaningful to us as a couple, but also has kept us alive as a family is doing conditions together. And so we do them fairly often, especially when we're traveling, but fairly often. And they keep us level-headed in times that are somewhat tumultuous or like during the lockdown, we were stuck on an island. Things could have gotten really ugly and we didn't want to panic. We didn't want to make any rash decisions. So we just really stuck to our guns and said, hey, God, what do you think about all this? And plugged into something beyond our petty little troubles. Well, what's happening in the world today? Well, God's thinking in millennia, right? So yeah. like to plug into mm. that energy of things will be okay has saved us so many times I can't even count. But yeah. for every couple, it's a little different. Like for some people, they're rock. I remember going to some people's houses and like their thing that keeps them alive is hunduke at a certain time in a certain way. And they both find a lot of meaning in that. And that's their thing for other people. It's like having a tradition of anshi'il or like, we're not here to judge, but it's really important to find that cross-section where it's valuable to both people in the relationship and starting at the beginning. And then again, you can build and you can iterate from there, but those traditions become very precious because they become yours. We have religious traditions, but to personalize them and to make them yours is really, really important. And as a family, you're starting your own traditions. So... I think that's really important to make sure that God's at the center of your relationship. Because otherwise it's just like me, I think this, you think this. And it's like, well, what does God think? Why don't we check in? Yeah. Just to be clear, which island were you stuck on? Bali. <laughs> okay. I just don't yeah. like saying it. It's such a, like a brand name <laughs> island. And I was saying it just for clarification for a while. And then I realized that it sounds really arrogant because like, oh, I was just in Bali the yeah. other day. I'm in Bali right doesn't matter. You did the me. same thing that I did at the beginning of this episode, explaining why I'm in Japan. <laughs> I just think it's funny because you said we were stuck on we're an island. We're too similar. And then, and then it was like, cast away, Tom Hanks came to mind. <laughs> oh. Yeah, no. no that's good. That's a good, that's a good island. island that. That's a good island to be stuck on. Cool, man. Yeah, I appreciate that. That's, that's great. Having condition. We've done a few in our family and it's just like two, honestly. They were both very important, life-changing decisions that we made. One of them was, should we have another kid? And then we did a condition about that. And then we had another kid. So look at that. My last point, and then we can head it back to you, is to develop, like God, like you said, develop a long-term mentality. So develop the muscle of thinking long-term as opposed to short-term. It's typical for people who are younger. The younger you are, the more short-term thinking you are. And the older you are, the more long-term you're able to think because you've lived through many different experiences. And so you have perspective as to how your decisions impact your life over a longer period of time. Teenagers, for example, or people in their 20s have a shorter time horizon. So they're thinking in short-term gains as opposed to like the long game, right? So this is something that comes up a lot with people that I'm mentoring in Ascend who are battling the porn addiction, right? 
Because if I ask them, why do you continue to do a behavior that you absolutely hate and it causes you so much torment and remorse and guilt and shame, why do you keep doing it? And if we really peel it back, eventually they say, well, because I enjoy it. That's the true honest answer is like, I enjoy it and it feels good. And then I say, well, so does cocaine and so does heroin. And so does everything that's bad for you feels great in the moment. But if you look at your life from a 10 year snapshot for the last 10, 20 years that you've had this habit in your life, has it really caused you enjoyment and pleasure? Or has it caused you more pain than anything? And they're like, well, yeah, actually, if I think about it from 10 year time horizon, it's not a very enjoyable experience because it's caused me so much torment in my life, so much shame, so much up and down emotional roller coaster to the point that I am just feeling desperate now. If you're thinking short term, sure, feels good. If you're thinking long term, feels terrible. It's actually not an enjoyable experience. This concept of thinking long term can be applied to any aspect of your life. And I think that the people that truly succeed in every area, such as exercise, fitness, career, relationships, business, finance, whatever it is, people that are able to see long term and not just get emotional about the short term up and down of whatever, then they succeed because they're able to see if I continue to do X, Y, and Z on this path, eventually I will get there. People who exercise on a frequent or infrequent basis, whatever your goals are, if they see it as like, oh, I'm going to get fit in three months, I'm going to six pack abs in two months, and that's their only goal, and they don't have a long-term goal, then the chances of them getting to their goal are slimmer because either they'll get there and they'll think, oh, like, what's next? Like, I have no other goal past two months. Or more likely, they won't get there because it's too arbitrary of a deadline. And then they'll think, oh, well, exercise wasn't for me. Therefore, I'm going to give up. Exercise for eternity is just not something I'm going to touch because I'm not that kind of guy. But if someone's thinking, okay, in 10 years from now, in 20, 30 years from now, this is the person that man or woman I want to be physically, fitness-wise or exercise-wise or career-wise or relationship or marriage-wise or sexual integrity-wise. And then you think backwards and think, okay, if I do X, Y, and Z thing, what are the things that I can do that will guarantee that I'll get there eventually? And people that think like that will have success because then you start thinking, let's take fitness, for example. If you don't eat garbage and just move your body a little more, eventually you'll get there. Like if you're living in a calorie deficit, you will lose weight. That's just scientific. You will eventually. But people that are on these like crash diets where they're trying to get fit for the summer or whatever, most of the time they're not succeeding because they're not thinking long term. So then the question people ask is like, okay, Benji, got it. I want to think more long term. I want to see how porn masturbation is affecting me in long term way and not just thinking about the short term win that I'm getting from it, the short term hit. How do I do that? How do I actually start thinking long term? I'm still trying to figure that out personally, because I'm always trying to work on like this ability to think long term instead of short term. But one thing I've noticed that has helped me a lot, and I think I've recommended to a lot of people is start with exercise, start with something that's physical. When you start with fitness, it's a clear gateway to learning how to notice how your psychology plays into your gains or your losses. If your first thought is like, oh, I want to get fit or lose weight or gain X amount of pounds in my bench press within this short time window, then it's like, okay, noticing that and then making adjustments to think more long-term and then working backwards. It's okay to have short goals, yes, but if you don't have a long-term goal that's kind of overarching your short-term goals, then what we're left with is usually disappointment in most cases. Or we do hit our goals and then we're like, we don't have anything else to live for because it's like, it doesn't end there. It's like focusing on developing that muscle of how do I think more long-term? And for some people, it just takes time. It's not necessarily a linear experience where as you age, you get more long-term thinking. 
because we know a lot of people that are older that think very short term and who have crippling addictions. And we have a lot of people that are younger, like even teenagers that are able to think long term and have a lot of success in that area. So I don't think it's necessarily directly linearly correlated to age, but it's more about perspective people have on things and developing that muscle of thinking long term for your relationship and bringing this back to marriage. If you can think long term, then it's like, yes, we're having an argument now, or we might disagree about this now, or there might be conflict, but that's okay because it's reasonable to suck at marriage in the beginning, but long-term thinking, we're going to be all right as we continue to work on this. And so then you can have the mental peace of mind to know that this is part of the process and eventually we'll get there. Like Andrew's saying, think how God thinks. God is not thinking short-term. God is thinking millennia in the future, way, way, way beyond what we're able to, capable of conceiving right now. So that's my last point for you. All right. Thank you. Benji just slowly wheeled his chair out off screen. If you are just getting blessed, please understand one of the best things that you can do is form a community. One of the worst things, which is a habit of our modern society is that individuals isolate themselves, but also couples do it a lot too. And they try to reinvent this wheel that's already tattered and <laughs> not doing so well. So why not learn from wisdom? connect vertically to people who've been there, done that, who have gone through difficult stuff and have come out on the other side. But also, if you're getting blessed, hanging out with other people who went to your blessing. There's a reason why there's high school reunions, because that's like my class. I graduated with that class. Same with the blessing. That's your blessing group. And to hang out with people like that, you've gone through something together. So to stick with each other is very, very important. If you're going to the blessing, in the future, please take all of this into account as we're talking contextually in this podcast episode about what happens when you get blessed. This is all stuff that you can be preparing for. These are all skills sets that you can be acquiring. And if you've been blessed for eons already, it's good to restart. Press the reset button every once in a while. A global reset. Let's not get into that. It doesn't matter where you fall in the spectrum of the blessing. This hopefully helped. And if you have any questions, and if you're Italian, we are expecting answers from you. But if you have any questions, let us know. We're happy, happy, overjoyed to hear from people. It's a desert out here sometimes. So thank you, Benji. Thank you, everybody. We will see you in the next episode. Yeah. Love you guys. Reach out if you need something. All right. Hey everybody, Andrew Love here, and I just wanted to let you know that we have completely revamped our offering known as the Ascend Program. Now, if you've been with us for a while, you know that the Ascend Program has been our flagship porn recovery program for years, and we've added a lot of content, we've tweaked things here and there, but recently we've completely done an overhaul in terms of our approach to recovery, and here's why. You see, originally we tried to appeal to everybody and we just let everybody come in. Anybody who said that they wanted to tackle porn, we just let them join. And there's a very low barrier of entry. But what we found was that a lot of people who thought they were ready to tackle their porn addiction or who kind of wanted to, they didn't always show up in the best way. And they, in many cases, brought the group dynamic down. And so what we've done is we've made the barrier of entry a little higher. And in turn, we've made our offering much more powerful. 
Let me explain. So when you sign up now, there is a small fee for everybody to sign up, but you get that money back once you finish that quarter. It's in kind of an escrow as a challenge for you to take your time more seriously because if you put money into something and you're only gonna get it back out if you really try, if you really attend your classes, if you really do all the work, then guess what? Your motivation to do that work is much higher. So that's the first thing. Second thing is we are, of course, offering our weekly call groups as a part of the Ascend program. So you'll have your group that you meet with every single week, and that's super important. But in addition to that, you're going to get daily accountability. You'll be able to message with somebody every single day in order to stay on track with your North Star goal. And more than that, every quarter you get two one-on-one -on -one calls with a high noon staff. That is a one-on-one -on -one call where we do a deep dive into where you're at and where you're going. And we help you to diagnose precisely what actions will be most useful for your time, for your energy, so that you can get the biggest results for your energy spent. So we are doing our best here at Highland to make sure that you grow the most in the shortest amount of time. It's all a part of our new roadmap that we've created. Anyway, we've been doing this for a while, but we are always getting better and better. And this quarter, the first quarter in 2023 is going to be monumental. So please sign up for this Ascend program. Take it super seriously and just watch what happens. Watch how your life transforms in a short period of time.